Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. If you're looking to throw some optics on your turkey gun this spring, look no further than the Vortex Defender ST. This is the red dot we're going to be running this season. We're excited about it. This thing's built like a tank, super lightweight, super long battery life, everything you need in a good turkey red dot. And if you want to get a discount on that red dot or any other Vortex Optic, go to eurooptic.com and use the code SGN10 to get a discount. That's eurooptic.com, code SGN10. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the EcoWild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar. May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you. And we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. We are coming back at you this week with a guest we had on just a couple weeks ago, Mr. Chuck Young. Chuck, how are you doing? I'm fine. How are y'all? I'm doing great. My dog just burst through the door and is now rampaging through the uh, through the podcast room. But what are you doing, bud? Jacob's here, too. Jacob, how are you doing? Doing well. Doing, doing real well. Uh, Dog, the dog totally threw me off. Okay, you got to restart that. That was terrible, Andrew. Can you restart that for us? No, just pick up where you left off. Oh, We're I good. don't know where I was because I was dog came barreling through here. I'm like, I thought I shut the door. The door like <laughs> slammed wide open. Oh, no, just pick, pick it up. We got the ginger bow hunter, Jacob Myers here. Yep, super excited to be here, guys. A little fiasco early on, but hey, glad to be here. Chuck, we are super excited to have you back <laughs> on the podcast. For a part two episode, uh, we had some really, really good feedback from your first episode uh, talking about the compounding uh, topographical features and everything else that we kind of discussed in that episode specifically, especially with your Wonderful. knowledge on the Washita Mountains. And actually, 
Funny enough, I had a, a solid handful of listeners, probably i say probably eight or nine, that reached out saying that they were so happy to hear somebody from the Washout Mountains app was actually having success and consistent success. Uh, we had some listeners telling me that, um, you know, they've hunted out there for a long time and it's kind of hit or miss and it was interesting to have you on. Uh, and they're very eager to learn more from you just because, you know, some of these guys have been kind of struggling in some of those areas. So I'd love to help if I can. Absolutely. Well, this is going to be a perfect episode, I think, to discuss on that. And kind of where we held off or or, or stopped the episode previously was on the discussion of, uh, you know, these compounding terrain features. And we had just barely, you know, just touched on some of these terrain features and how you like to hunt them. We talked a little bit about uh, benches and also, you know, these drainages or draws along with some of these saddles. But maybe we can kind of start back from there and kind of see, you know, where this conversation goes specifically on those topographical features. So, Chuck, I'll kind of, you know, throw it your way. You know, based off our last well, conversation, how should we go about this conversation to, you know, simplify it for listeners? Well, let me take it back even a little bit farther. Uh, when you're hunting decent-sized mountains, in the first place, it's a whole lot of difficult ground to cover. So unlike some of the other people that y'all may have had on the show that I've, I've listened to a few episodes recently, and one, one person who comes to thought, Immediately, is uh, I listened to Richard Fought, and uh, and 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 uh, his his theories on feed trees, you know, hunting all of eastern Arkansas out there in the in the ag land and the swamp land, and and then going to the hill country and everything being completely different, and it really is. It's uh, I imagine the the feed tree option would probably work in the mountains, but you've got to cover so much difficult ground and all that climbing expends so much physical energy to try and find an active feed tree that <laughs> you're going to be pretty worn out by the time you find one. <laughs> so a lot, a lot of the time it makes a lot more sense. And especially during the pre-rut and the rut to just find paths of least resistance in the mountains, which involves topographical features that you'll find on any topographical map that are going to funnel deer movement so that deer that are moving from bedding to feeding, you can catch them in the process of going from one area to the other without actually finding the feed tree and most of the time without finding the actual bed either. They're just generally going to come through that area eventually in search of food or in, in the case of bucks in search of does. Okay. Absolutely. So, I mean, that's, a, that's one good way to talk about it. Cause I have actually thought about that with Richard fought talking so specifically on, you know, his feed tree tactics. I've never really heard a lot of guys in the mountains talk about it in, in that way. And it seems like what you're saying is again, is the difficultness of cover enough terrain in order to find that one tree they're actually coming to feed to. And that's where it makes more and more sense to focus on these terrain features that's going to naturally kind of funnel those deer through that area to give you a better opportunity at them. Right. And, um, uh, I mean, I, I use a, uh, I use the hunt stand app on my phone. I know y'all use Onyx. Uh, they're both basically very similar. But I also do a lot of map viewing on my laptop computer, and uh, I, I go to a website called CalTopo quite frequently. And uh, I, I can't do this on HuntStand. I don't know if you can on Onyx or not because I've never been on Onyx, but it gives you the option to uh, color shade in steep areas. 
you know, slope angle shading. And you can click on a box and it'll color on your map uh, by intensity of color, you know, like a light yellow for a little bit of a heavier, a uh, little bit of a heavier climb. And then it'll go to orange and red. And when it gets really, really steep, it turns like purple and blue. And so uh, by, by, by printing out maps or viewing them on your phone, you can go to CalTopo on your phone too, not just your laptop, but I, I prefer the laptop because the screen is larger and I'm getting old, so my eyes aren't what they used to be, you know. But you can see all that slope angle shading as well as the topographic lines. And I think for somebody new, that might actually make it a little bit easier for them to understand the map and see where these gentle progressions of slope are, because those are the paths of least resistance and the places where deer are most likely to travel. That's a that's a really good point. Um so Onyx actually has recently added slope angle shading. Uh, I think they added it in like awesome. February. So yeah, I've been using it a lot. I, that's one of my favorite tools. I really enjoy using that, especially for finding uh, bluff gaps and stuff, which I use, I've used Caltopo a lot too. And where you have like that really purple color is usually where you have some kind of bluff or something. But that's also mm-hmm. a good point about it being an easy way to read maps uh, because, you know, you can learn how to read a topo map and be really good at reading a topo map, but having that slope angle shading also just makes it easier, even if you already know what you're looking at. I think especially for somebody, for somebody new, especially, sorry to interrupt, it would, it would keep you from reading things accidentally in reverse, I think. Oh yeah, for sure. Definitely. And also, you know, if you're going to target some steep stuff, I mean, it instantly shows you where that is on the map. You know, there's no exactly looking around or whatever. I mean, you know, as soon as you're looking at it, um, when it comes to that slope angle shading, uh, what is one way that you try to use that? I mean, are you just looking for extremely steep terrain, uh, to go scout or, or target? Well, for one thing, I'm, I'm looking for easy entrances and exits if, if I can find them into an area. The less physical energy that I have to expend getting over the mountain and getting to where I'm wanting to go, if I have a choice, that's what I'm going to do if I can take a direct route. I prefer to take a direct route if I'm going over the mountain. Sometimes that's possible. Sometimes it's a little bit difficult. I don't really want to spread my wind around any more than I have to going back and forth east to west, trying to go up the ridge. It's a lot easier to climb just side hill, you know, which which is when you find trails in the mountains, that's usually what the deer are doing is side hilling. But they're just trying to expend the least amount of energy. But I'm trying to, if I can, just go straight up the incline as, as, as much as possible and drop right onto where I'm headed so that, uh, my scent isn't getting dispersed any farther to the east and west than it has to be. Sometimes I can do that. Sometimes it's just almost impossible because of the steepness of situations or else because of extremely heavy cover that I may actually have to instead find the closest finger and and go up that. And uh, so then I'm going to look for the the closest finger that has a gentle slope to it if there's several that i have to choose from in the area right there and preferably the one that's going to benefit me more wind wise depending upon which direction the wind is supposed to be coming from that day yeah so uh chuck i'm trying to work with andrew over here uh i wanted to bring up an important point here talking about this is for anyone that's on our Patreon, we actually put out a question 
uh, a couple days ago about you know having you back on the podcast and give them opportunities to be able to ask specific questions that you, they want you to hear directly. And we actually had a listener ask that. Uh, and he was what, what I mean. What he was asking, uh, I believe it's Chris Summerfield was asking the question of when you're accessing these areas and you're trying to get to the north side of some of these slopes uh, from the south side, what particular train or feature are you using to get over the top in the easiest way possible? Or sometimes, you know, you just have to go up the steepest stuff just because it's the shortest, you know, um, access point. Yeah, yeah, I kind of sort of just almost answered that question indirectly. But if if I can take a direct route over the south side, dropping onto the north side right where I intend to hunt, then that's what I'm going to do. You know, uh, if if the wind is blowing a little out of the northeast, then I may actually start on the south side a little bit to the west to have the wind actually in my face. You understand? Or or if the wind is blowing out of the northwest, I may start a little bit southeast and, and work my way over. But I prefer to go straight over or slightly to one side or the other if the wind is blowing out of the northeast or the northwest. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and, uh, and so if, if, like I said, barring cover that's so thick that you're just going to have a difficult time climbing in it in the dark or catch catch a lot of gear on it, make a lot of noise, you know, then, then I'll try and find a little bit clearer access area. If it's extremely thick in that whole area, but I'm intent on hunting that spot, then instead what I'll do is I'll try and go down the ridge however far I have to, a quarter of a mile, you know, a half a mile until I find an area that is more open and it's going to be a slightly easier climb with less noise involved. And then I'm not intending to hunt the other side of the mountain there anyway, so I don't really care if my scent goes over the top, you know, and and I blow that area out. Uh, I'll get to the top of the ridge, and then, okay, if I I go, say, to the east, and once I hit the top of the ridge, I'll just stay on the crest of the ridge and work my way back off to the west to drop into where I want to. Uh, that's like I said, that's a second choice. You know, that's if I have to, I'll do that. From my experience, you can usually get away with that. Cause like I said, out here in the Washita's in the places that I have experienced hunting, most of the deer are down in the bottoms at night. And I very seldomly ever, ever bump a deer on top of a ridge in the dark. Staying on that kind of that same subject. Uh, and also the, the same guy who asked the question, Chris Somerville, um, the next question he asked, this is from our Patreon account. Uh, he said, uh, when talking about hunting the ends of ridges, how does he access or set up any differently than when he goes over the top? On the ends of ridges, as far as setup, uh, I prefer the east ends of ridges over the west ends of ridges because I'm primarily a morning hunter. I will hunt afternoons, but my primary hunting time is mornings. That's just what I prefer. I'm a morning kind of guy. And uh, I've had a lot more success over the years in the mornings than I have in the afternoons, Uh, especially during the pre-rut and rut, which is really my favorite time to hunt. Now, early in the season out here in the Washita's, I've actually had a lot more luck hunting in the afternoons in the early season than the first part of October. Or recently, they've started opening the season, usually around the last week of September. So for those first three weeks... I will tend to hunt more afternoons, usually early in the season like that, when still the deer are really still in a feeding pattern. As far as the setup goes, on the end of the ridge, 
I try and look at a topo image of the area and try and find an area on the end of the ridge where secondary or finger ridges coming up either from the south or the north, if it's an east-west running ridge, you know, theoretically, uh, are, are intersecting the, the main ridge. And where two or three of those points intersect down there toward the end, that's what I'm interested in is where multiple fingers are going to connect with that main ridge. The closer to the end of the ridge, the better. Basically creating almost like a, like, like a hub up there. Um, Yes, exactly. It's a hub. Okay. But yeah, but not like a thermal hub type deal. I mean, this is like the top of the ridge. No, it's, it's just a, it's just a place where several paths of least resistance will intersect is basically what it is. Real quick, Chuck, how do you set up on those spots? As in like, uh, I know, again, you're ground hunting a lot these days. How do you set up in those locations? I mean, are you setting up pretty much on top of the ridge? Are you going over just one edge, especially when you're in a spot where there's multiple of these secondary points all coming together? How do you like to set up in those locations? If if, if I'm on the end of the ridge, okay, and the wind is blowing out of the north, okay, if I'm on the end, if I'm on the end of an east-west running ridge, and I've got points coming, points or fingers coming from the north and the south. If the wind is blowing out of the north, then I'm going to hunt the north side, okay? And I prefer usually to hunt the north side on the primary ridge, but on the ends, I let the wind dictate where I'm going to hunt. So if the wind is blowing out of the south, I will hunt on the south side. If the wind is blowing out of the north, I will hunt on the north side. So most people would say hunt on the leeward side. I do the exact opposite of that. Okay, there's there's a, there's a lot of meat there. Most just perked up a little. Yeah, bit. we're not we're not even getting to the we're gonna get to the topographical stuff in just a second here. Um, so one of our buddies, actually a couple of our good buddies that are uh, big contributors to the podcast, one being Paul Putera, he talked to me a ton about getting away from not necessarily hunting the leeward side, but hunting the windward side of ridges, right? Because of how the bucks set up on them and how they travel. And a lot of people kind of overlook that because so many people are taught, well, you need to hunt the leeward side, you know, the side downwind, um, which would be if it's a north facing or if it's a north wind, it would be the the south facing slope or the ridge would be the uh, leeward side. But you're talking about hunting the windward side. And that's something very interesting because Paul's brought that up to me and he sees a lot of success in those areas with those how those bucks travel. What have you learned hunting the windward side like that, especially like in these setups? Like, how, how does the bucks, how do the deer move or travel compared to like what you may be seeing on the leeward side of the ridge? From from my experience, usually on on the windward side of the ridge, there's more parallel movement. That's 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 been my experience. There's more parallel movement along the along you know say that theoretically the main ridge is east and west deer tend to move more parallel east and west with that main ridge when you're on the windward side. That's been my experience. And that's exactly what I'm looking for when I'm hunting up high. I'm wanting deer that are traveling, you know, east to west in front of me. I don't want them to come up directly underneath me. I want them to come in from one side or the other and be able to see them coming up way before they see me. So I have a chance to be prepared when they get into my shooting window. Okay, perfect. And, and then one more, th- one more thing. Talking about hunting these finger ridges at the end of the ridge in this circumstance uh-huh. on the eastern side, because you're a big morning hunter playing thermals to your advantage. It's gonna be the first side of the mountain that's gonna have the rising thermal. Um, 
that being said, I just want to touch on this maybe one more time or kind of reiterate. When you're setting up on that and say it's a north wind, you're facing that north uh, finger that's coming into the main ridge. The main right. ridge, the top of the main ridge is going to be much higher probably than that secondary ridge point. When you're set- exactly. When you're setting up, you're setting up right over the top of that secondary ridge point off the main ridge looking down onto it. Is that correct? Exactly. I'm setting up right over the center of that finger so that I can catch movement coming up out of the draw on either side of that finger. And plus, I'm trying to play thermals because if my scent does go downhill and and the finger has a little bit of width to it, which is what I would prefer, my scent is more likely to go right down the center of that finger out in front of me instead of sliding down either one of those draws, which is where I expect the deer to come up. Yeah, Chuck, it's funny you mentioned that, and people are going to get tired of me talking about this, but right after the first time that we had you on, I went fishing on a lake, and <laughs> Jacob's laughing. I listened to the episode. Okay. Yeah, that was fascinating. So you know what I'm talking about. So if people don't know what yeah. I'm talking about, y'all can go listen to that. But that's essentially what you're talking about here, because the thermal pull wasn't, I mean, there was like nothing coming off the points of those ridges, but if you went around to certain bigger creek drainages, that's got where... got below that draw. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah. that, so your scent is essentially going down onto that finger and kind of settling somewhere. It's not going very far, right. and it's not moving very fast. Right. It's kind of just getting it going down a little bit and stopping and just milling in one place. I, I, I think, I mean, I'm not down, I'm not down there with, with, with a wind analyzer or anything, but it's, I, it, it works for me. So I'm guessing that my sin is not traveling that far or it's stopping somewhere along the way and just ending up in a lull because the deer that are coming up the draws are not smelling me. Mm-hmm. And you're, and you're just, hopefully shooting them before they might get to that pool of scent exactly yeah before they can get over to the center of the finger i'm set up in open enough terrain that i can see them working their way up out of the draw and coming out of it before they have a chance to get into my scent path um one one of your uh, listeners had also you, you sent me a, a a question that they had asked about do do I use any scent and uh, sometimes I do sometimes I don't but I don't know how many people use this use, use this scent strategy but I have kind of a strategy that I use and uh, I, I I think it would probably work well whether you're using a tree stand or whether you're hunting from the ground and. Uh, I don't always do this. It's not religious, but it's something that I've experimented with a lot in the past, and I have had success with it. And this to to pull it off, though, you you need the wind at your back instead of the wind in your face. So you've you've got to hunt the leeward side of the mountain instead of the windward side of the mountain. But if anybody wants to try it, what I what I used to do was I would take you know early in the season something like just trails in 307 or some you know non-rut type scent dopey you know and um, basically i would put that out you know like i said i would set up with the wind at my back and i did this in a tree stand as well as on the ground and i, I would set the scent out about 40 yards to either side of me so say Say the wind is blowing out of the north, and I'm on the south side of the ridge, and the wind is blowing on my back, okay? Then I'm up in my tree. I've got to the east and to the west of me 
40 yards to either side of me and slightly back of me, like five to 10 yards. I've got deer scent placed, you know, about six feet on a tree limb above the ground on either side of me so that the wind blowing to my back is carrying that scent out on either side of me 40 yards or so. Okay. Now, if the wind shifts a little bit to easterly or westerly direction, those scents, as well as my scent in the middle of that, is going to shift probably the same. All, all of us, all of that is going to shift the same direction. The point of this being that if a deer is paralleling the main ridge, traveling east to west or west to east, this deer, instead of walking straight out in front of my scent and busting me, is going to hit either the 40-yard scent to the east or the 40-yard scent to the west and make a 90-degree turn to come and investigate that scent instead of continuing on a straight path and intercepting my scent trail. And so that brings the deer towards you on one side or the other. If it comes in on your, you know, if you're a right-handed shooter and it comes in on your right side, you may have to get up and, you know, turn in your tree stand, you know, to, to be able to pull a shot off, but it's going to pull the, pull the deer in closer and keep them from intersecting your scent trail. That, that, that was my strategy. Now that, that, that reminds us, we, we haven't talked about this on the podcast. Uh, well, actually I think we did, but we didn't, it wasn't through an interview. Michael Yates and Michael Yates, that's who did something. Does some, we, yeah. a, a buddy of ours does something similar, but he does it when he's ground hunting. I don't think he puts it quite that far out. Uh, and he has a ton of success doing something very, very similar to what you're talking about, uh, Chuck. And, but it's something we have. I think we talked about on the podcast with Michael Pike last year, but we never actually we didn't talk about it with Bill Vale, did we? Uh, potentially, potentially. I just, I just know we have also because you're t- you're doing the whole handkerchief thing. That, yeah, yeah, that, was, yeah. that was Yates too. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah, I yeah, think yeah. Bill might have talked about it in that episode. But that is something super interesting. Now, can you talk about just brush on just while we're on that topic? Because I think some listeners are probably a little interested here again that setup again you're setting up for parallel deer movement most likely down below you within bow shot if i had to guess and i yes. guess that having that sent out you know 40 yards to your, to your you know right 48 yards to your left and also it seems like just uphill of you just a touch uh it kind of gives you a little more kind of a corner you call it protection or maybe a little bit more of a um i don't know like like oh what's the right what's the right word i'm trying to think here the right phrase Something maybe help you out in case you actually need it in that situation. Uh, can, can you talk about any like successful hunts or or opportunities or anything where that's actually kind of happened, especially with like deer reacting to it? Because I've heard just with so many people we've talked to, you know, we've talked to some individuals that were, you know, very much believing or like really, you know, like the use of deer scents and lures, and some people that just you know hated them because they've had negative you know responses to it. What's been some of those responses in those areas and how you set that up? I've had negative responses and I've had positive responses too, but I think it's not so much the scent. I think it's the type of scent that you're using and the timing of what you're using it. It seems like when I have scared deer, I was trying to use rut scents too early in the season. And that's why I started using like trails in 307 or, or just dopey, you know, golden, uh, golden, golden, golden doe, I think it's called. Um, anyhow, but, uh, I, I have definitely had bucks that, that have hit, that have hit that scent trail and come within bow range. And then it was up to me whether I wanted to actually 
take a shot at them or not. And I, I actually actually arrowed a nice buck like that once. Um, he came. He came. He, he was actually following a doe. And when he hit that trail, this was in early October. And when he hit that trail, he turned a ninety and just came directly to that scent and walked right underneath me. It was. It was like he. It was like he was on a string. It does work. Uh, I, I've had more deer that 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 do come to investigate it than than deer that get upset with it or frustrated with it or whatever and pissed off and leave the area. Uh, that doesn't usually happen, like I say, unless I feel like I'm using the wrong scent. And I, I've even tried using just over the counter stuff, and and I haven't had a lot of success with that. You know, things like vanilla. It seems like natural deer scents definitely work better. The scent setup is pretty interesting, and I want to kind of get back to, you know, we had the whole we were having a whole discussion on, you know, windward topo first, features, yeah, topo features, and, and the you know leeward side and the windward side of the ridges. Right. When we're talking again, kind of getting back to the whole windward side and hunting in that situation, how does that also play in a factor again when we're talking about some of these topo features? Uh, you know, last week again we talked on you know a little bit on saddles, you know, benches and these draws. How does this all come play together with, you know, anything else that you're doing out there? And what else are you kind of looking for when it comes to topo features? Okay. Uh, one of the main other things that I didn't mention that the last time is I'm also, uh, you, you asked me a few minutes ago, not to get off on an extreme tangent, but uh, about the contour shading on like uh, on Cal Topo or on Onyx, you know, the slope angle shading. Uh, you're asking me how, how I utilize that. I don't, I don't only utilize that to find passive least resistance up and down the mountain, but I also look for those areas like you were talking about that are shaded purple or blue. Uh, at least I don't know about Onyx, but that's the shading that they use on Cal Topo. And that's, that's the most extreme steepness areas. Uh, I have found that bucks really, really, really like to bed near those steep areas. They either like to have it at their back, you know, if it's got a good bedding spot underneath it, or they like to be above it because that's just one direction especially if they're above it, that they do not have to worry about any danger coming from whatsoever. It's just so incredibly steep that not even a bear is going to climb that easily. So I'm using it for that too. And see, that's, that's something that I found interesting as well. So when you've, you know, found that purple and again, it's the same thing on Onyx, the Cal Topo and Onyx, the slope angle shading looks very, very similar because I've used, we've used, we've used both services um, but yeah, that purple, like dark, a lot of people, I'll say this, a lot of people, when they see the slope angle shading, they see like red, like red and even dark red, you can still climb that. It's just, you know, dark red, you might be doing three points of contact. But when you hit purple, in my experiences, especially in the Ozark mountains, you are hitting bluffs or you are hitting, you're hitting stuff that you would need repel gear most likely to go exactly. up and down. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's it's serious, serious grade. Yeah. But but like I said, a buck will use that to his, his advantage. You know, uh, that's one side that he does not have to worry about danger coming from. Just like deer that are bedding along a major river that prefer to bed in thick areas along the right along the edge of the river. They don't have to worry about any danger coming from that water. So that spot, you know, we're talking about the buck using that steep terrain to his advantage. Is there a way mm -hmm. that you also use that steep train to your advantage when it comes to moving in on him or some kind of particular setup? 
Well, if you set up uh, uh, up at the top of that stuff, obviously that steepness, if there's distance between that and the top of the ridge, that's going to funnel or channel movement. You know, they're not going to walk along that steep corridor where you've got to have three or four points of contact. They're, they're either going to walk above it or they're going to walk below it. So it's, 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 it acts as a funnel. So it's an area that you would definitely want to look at and scout and see if there's any kind of a faint buck trail running through it. When you think turkey calls, think of Houndstooth. Houndstooth Game Calls is a company based right here in Alabama, actually based out of Tuscaloosa, and they have been making some of our favorite turkey calls since 2012. Y'all head on over to their website, see what they got. They got a little something for everybody. They have a huge selection of different mouth calls, different cuts, different read configurations. I like to go on there and get five or six different mouth calls and just run them, see which ones I like the most. You know, some days I might like the KB Hen, some days I might like the Ghost Cut. Some situations I might like the Country Girl Call, you know, that I can cut on really hard where on other situations I might like the all pro that I can get a little bit softer on. Bottom line, there's something for everybody and something for every situation. And hey, you can get 15% off of your order at Houndstooth Game Calls by using the promo code SOP24. That's SOP24. Use that promo code. It'll get you a discount and it helps out the podcast. Yeah, I feel like a lot of, this might sound kind of goofy, but I feel like a lot of uh, deer hunting media that at least I consumed, especially when I was younger, was always talking about funnels as, as, you know, pinch points between fields and inside corners and saddles and stuff. And it wasn't until I really started hunting with Jacob and Michael that I started looking at other things as funnels like really, really, really steep terrain or like the edge of a lake or the edge of a pond or something as a funnel where it's like, oh, this is a thing that they have to go around. Uh, and so especially in an area where, you know, maybe it's just kind of monotonous, that can actually be a, a jam up spot uh when you just have some kind of feature that they once they run into it they got to go around it one way or another yeah yeah sometimes it can be something that just doesn't really stand out to you especially in a big woods open hardwood scenario a lot of times you'll just find a line of brush you know uh, just a sparse line of brush that's coming up through an area of the mountain and the bucks will tend, not so much the does, but the bucks for sure will tend to use that brush to their advantage as they're climbing. They'll stay down in it. They know it has a, a that it's a security feature. They they just instinctively figure that out, you know. But uh, as far as getting back to things to look for on topo maps, uh, like I said, I'm looking for benches. I'm also looking for what people, I call them flats, other people call them shelves. When you're looking at a topo map, just an area, preferably on the top third of the mountain. And it's it's just an area, as y'all know already, where those topo lines are just farther apart for, it could be a quarter of a mile, it could be a half a mile, it could just be, you know, a, a hundred yards. But those those flatten they're never really flat it's just an area that's surrounded by steeper contour where the contour suddenly gets a little bit subtler along the side of the mountain where they're paralleling it and if if the deer find that you're going to find trails there and you're going to see deer roaming through that area consistently that's that's a really great place to hunt above is any any place you find a flat like that there's lots of mountain ridges out here that 
don't have a whole lot of features on them. They're just a big ridge that runs east and west, and they might have a, a bench along them someplace, maybe a couple, a handful of really light fingers that don't really stand out like a sore thumb. And on, on mountains like that, deer are still going to be there. They're still going to use those mountains. It's just that they don't have those benches and all those points to work with, they're more likely to use shelves like that to, to bed on. They, they really like to bed right out on the edge of the shelf and walk the edge of the shelf right where the contour drops off and breaks, where it gets steeper again below that shelf, because they can see walking along that edge down that off of that shelf for a long, long distance. And so they, they parallel along those shelves. So that's another thing I'm looking for in mountains is shelves, breaks in the topographic outlay where the lines are spread a little bit farther apart that parallel the main ridge. Or they could even be paralleling uh, a secondary ridge or finger, but that's just not as not quite as common, you know. Uh, another thing that I'm, I'm looking for, like I said, Saddles, okay, that's a, that's a very common term, but there's really more than one type of saddle. I mean, to me, there's basically three different types. You've, you've got a saddle on, on a main ridge, okay? And, I mean, I'm sure the reason why they call it saddle is it, it, it looks like a horse's saddle, okay? Uh, you, you know, it's just a drop in the middle, all right? You've got a high point on either side of it, east and west, on an east and west running ridge, okay? But you can also have those saddles on actually secondary ridges. That finger or secondary ridge that's running off that east-west ridge to the north or to the south, when you get down the mountain a certain way, sometimes it'll flatten out for a little ways, and then sometimes as you're going down, it will rise again in elevation and create a little saddle-looking shape right there on the middle of that finger. That's a really good place to hunt above also. It's almost the same situation as hunting a higher saddle, okay? Deer tend to use it when they're paralleling fingers and crossing them one after another. OK, uh, especially bucks during the rut cruising, looking to pick up scents of does. They like to cross through those saddles on those fingers and just run those fingers straight across. The heavy worn trails are up at the tops of the draws between those fingers that the does like to run. But from my experience, the bucks a lot of time just run the deep parts of those fingers and cross over at those saddles that are in those fingers. So that can be a really productive spot as well. And then the third type of saddle is whenever you've got a, a, a large finger that's running up onto a ridge and all of a sudden it flattens out a little ways and then it goes for a certain distance and then it breaks sharp back up to the top of the ridge again. Well, deer will use that just like a saddle where that sharp break is going up to the top of the ridge where that ridge is flattened out a little bit, it doesn't actually look like a horse-type saddle. You know, it's more relatively flat. But right there where that break in terrain is that goes up, they'll cross right there across that secondary ridge, just as if it were a saddle. It's a, it's a point of easier access to get beyond from point A to point B, rather than going over the top of the ridge. With Hold on. That, that third saddle you just touched on, 
is that just so I'm trying to picture this correctly? That large fing that large finger ridge that comes up to the main ridge is that saddle nearly right where the finger ridge meets the main ridge? Is that where it's located? Yes. Okay. It, it, it's yes. It's it's close to where the finger meets the main ridge, but like I said, sometimes it'll it the slope will flatten off for a little while, kind of like a be- a bench or a flat. It, it will. You know, the contour will get easier for a little while and it'll flatten out a little bit and then it'll break sharp again going uphill to meet the main ridge. And where that break is, look for that spot right there because that's another excellent crossing point where deer will want to cross that finger going from one direction to the other. They treat it just as they would a saddle on the main ridge. It's 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 a path of least resistance. It's easier for them to go get over the top of that finger right there. That actually brings me to a question I had earlier. Uh, Chuck, what is the difference, just to clarify, between a shelf and a bench? One of the train features you mentioned earlier, you have a, a shelf versus a bench. Uh, what are the main differences between those two? Okay, the main differences between a shelf and or, or what I refer to as a shelf, which I also call a flat, okay, and a bench, is the shelf or the flat, like I said, okay, you've got an hypothetically an east-west running ridge, okay? Let's say we're looking just at the north side of the ridge and those contour lines, okay? The spacing between those contour lines is going up toward the top of the ridge. All of a sudden, you see an area that, like I said, it could be a quarter of a mile. It could be less than that. It could be a half a mile. It could be a mile long. But all of a sudden, there's a place on the side of the mountain, even crossing draws that are in that side of the mountain, where the the contour lines suddenly get farther apart, okay, indicating that there is less slope in that area. And then above that area to the top of the ridge, the steepness continues again and the lines get closer together so the deer that are paralleling the mountain are going to run along that flat or shelf because it's it's the path of least resistance and they have to expend less energy which is an important commodity in the animal world obviously you know uh, they're limited with what nature provides them as far as food so they're not going to expend any more energy than they have to and so they're going to take the easy route especially if they're not being pressured. And uh, so they're going to run that flat or shelf. Now, a bench, my definition of a bench, a bench can be round. A bench can be football-shaped, oval. It can be triangular. But basically, it's just a chunk of land that shoots out off the main ridge if the main ridge is running east and west, it can either be on the north side or it can be on the south side of the main ridge. It's attached to the main ridge, and it just butts into it. Uh, it's common for round ones or oblong ones, you know, oval-shaped or football-shaped, or sometimes they're just elongated, uh, like a long, long, long football, <laughs> a long, skinny football. Usually they have a point at the back of them where it narrows down and does what I call necks into the main ridge. It joins the main ridge. And if it joins the main ridge with a neck like that, then there'll be a draw between the outside edges of that bench and the main ridge that deer tend to come up. Okay. All right. So, Chuck, now I've got a question about benches for you in a lot more detail here. 
again, and I, I kind of mentioned this, I think the first time we had you on was like, you know, not all terrain features are, are created equal. And I say that quite a Let bit. Let me say one more thing real quick. Oh yeah, sure thing. Those, those benches don't necessarily have to be rounded on top. Sometimes they're flat. Sometimes they're flat. Sometimes they're rounded on top. They, they come both ways. Okay. So that's all I wanted to add. Absolutely. So what I want to kind of get to is like I mentioned previously on the first episode, like not all terrain features are created equal. And sometimes the deer may use one bench or one saddle or one, you know, a couple few drainages over other ones. So it's not like they're using every single terrain feature that's out on these mountains. But when I was in uh, the, the Ozark mountains this past year hunting, I was hunting along a bench and I want to get your take on this in just a second that the bench probably ran for nearly two miles um it that's was a big bench very long bench that actually went in and around a couple of huge drainages so it went straight long down the length of this one major ridge off the main side of the mountain and then it cut back at like a 45 degree angle back into a drainage and went around the other side too um and it was something that caught my attention to go and hunt my question is when you're looking at different benches and different length, specifically the length of the bench, okay, you may have one that's 100 yards, you may have one that's a couple hundred yards, you may have one that's half a mile long. You're talking about wide or deep? Uh, lengthwise, width-wise. Uh, not, not, like okay. not the depth off the mountain, but the length along the mountain, um, along right. the ridge. When you're hunting a bench, from everything it seems like, it seems like you're wanting to get to one edge or the other where drainage is coming up. Would you say that's correct, or would you ever sit over the top of one of those longer benches, like in the middle of it, or would you get to one end or the other where you're going to have one of those drainages? If, if, if it's a bench, I'm always going to hunt above the bench, not on the bench. I want to be above the bench wherever the bench joins the mountain. That would be my preferred hunting spot. And what, what I wanted to go with that, maybe I didn't word the question correctly. So, of course, you're hunting above the bench. Are you going to hunt over if it's a mile long bench in this example would you hunt over the just the very top of it in the middle or would you get to one side to the east side or to the west side closer to one of the drainages it depends on okay uh, i would be direct if it if if there's a narrow neck down where the bench joins the mountain then i would hunt above that neck down if it's a really wide area where the bench joins the ridge then i would depending upon the wind direction I would be on the downwind side, whether it be east or west, if it's a east or west running ridge, I would be on the downwind side wherever it necks into the main ridge. I would not be out in the middle. I would be on one end or on the other end. Okay, got you. And I would let the wind dictate which end on that day I would hunt. Yeah, because one thing I'm trying to figure out, uh, just because where we're in the country down here in, in Alabama, it's very... Few and far between you ever find, like, a decent bench, okay? Uh, th- there's a few places you can go to and you can find them, but it was nothing like what I was finding up in the Ozark Mountains. Um, and I hunted a bench that, you know, I was hunting specifically for bear and deer and, and saw both two nice bucks and a, and a good bear that morning. And they killed a nice bear the, the, that evening, that afternoon, all on that bench but 800 yards apart. And one thing I was trying to figure out is the movement in and around those benches. And those two bucks that came in actually came in after five minutes after I got done calling, um, was walking right down the center of the bench. And I, unlike your setup, again, I was thinking about this, maybe not the same way you are with your kind of experience. I was sitting where the bench broke over off the side of the mountain. So away from where it joins the mountain, I was hunting the outer edge of it where it drops back off again. 
thinking that maybe someone's going to be walking on the bench or just above the bench, and it drops. If it's below the bench, maybe I get a shot at it before it gets directly downwind of me uh, with the falling thermals. And uh, those bucks are walking right down the center of the bench. How often? Well, now mm-hmm. in an afternoon setup, to me, it would make sense to hunt down below the bench. But like I said, for the most part, I'm a morning hunter. And from my experience, you know, I know the last time that y'all talked to me, I said that early on somebody had given me the advice to hunt high in the morning and hunt low in the evening. Well, I just want to say that hunting low is a relative term because I've had a lot of experience of uh, deer in areas that I hunt uh, low to them can be a drop of just a couple of hundred feet in elevation in the last 30 minutes before sunset. You know, sometimes they're really slow to come off the mountain. So if you're hunting all the way down at the base of the mountain, uh, yeah, you, you've got thermals to your advantage, but you've got thermals to your advantage coming all the way down from the top of the mountain you know, that late in the evening. And so uh, if you're targeting mature bucks and not does, it's been my experience that a lot of those better bucks will not come off the mountain until late. And so they don't do it very quickly either. And so you should, you should still hunt pretty high up on that mountain, even in the evenings has been my experience. Yeah, and that's one thing I think you've realized, too, is a lot of these deer are staying at a higher elevation longer than what most people would imagine, uh, myself myself included. I, because just the way you're talking about these bucks bedded, along with the does and everything, if you're trying to get a mature buck, you're going to have to be hanging out there with them up close to that top third of the ridge, it seems like, on these big ridges and on these mountain systems. Um, now, with kind of getting back to some of these terrain features, again, the bench ones always is kind of interesting because – I know just different people hunt them different ways. What what are some of these other kind of features, especially when you're looking at compounding features where you're trying to have multiple different things in one area? What are some of these other features or uh, or, or habitat edges that will really kind of help you key on in some place that's like worth your time going into and specifically scouting? Okay, another thing that I look for uh, out here in these mountains, I don't know if they exist in all mountains, but in the Washita's, there's several places I found what I call land bridges. And basically, it's where you've got a main mountain ridge that's running east and west and another mountain ridge that's either to the north or the south of that main mountain ridge, which is another main ridge. And you've got a piece of land that's lower ground that is kind of like a saddle but it's it's so long it could be a mile long it's basically what i call a land bridge and it's 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 basically a piece of land that can zigzag back and forth or it can go in a straight line it can have contour that goes up and down a little ways so it can have saddles in it as well and and uh it's 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 just an area that basically joins two major ridges together and so it's a really good place during the rut to catch cruising bucks that aren't having any luck on one major ridge and they want to go check the does on another major ridge it's a really good place where they can cross at high elevation yeah and chuck i think this is a really good thing to kind of reiterate that this kind of 
this kind of technique of finding stuff like a land bridge, I mean, you got to be zoomed way out on the map to find stuff like that. I mean, this is definitely yeah, some yeah. like large scale scouting techniques, like general, like general deer movement across an entire area, which is something we've talked a little bit about in the past, like on really a smaller scale than what you're talking about. But we we've, we've kind of talked about landscape saddles like that, where uh, you you might have like a really really large ridge. And there's just one low point in that ridge, and you're so far zoomed out on the map that it might not even register in your head as a saddle, but it is a saddle. And this sounds something pretty similar to, to that, but on a much, much larger scale. Yeah, it is a much larger scale. And you, you're right, to really find them, you have to zoom out and look at large areas of land. And when I, when I, when I scout, I always start with, with, with photos and with topos first before I sit any boot leather into the field. I'm going to narrow, narrow down what I want to look at at home in the comfort of my house before I go out there and burn myself out and find areas that look good to me topographically and have these features like shelves, benches, saddles, and ends of ridges that have multiple secondary ridges joining and coming together to where, like I say, you've got a lot of compounding features in one area. The more compounding features you have, the better off the area is potentially to scout, in my opinion. And so it's just it's just more invitation for more deer to travel through that area where all of that meets up. Uh, I, I want to get into your scouting. That kind of brings up your, your scouting a little bit. And that's something that we had uh, some listeners ask about. I know that you mentioned it a lot in the last episode. But you say you like to kind of scout from the comfort of your home, find a place on the map that looks good enough for you to spend the time to go in there and look at it. Well, let's say that you found something that looks great and you want to go in there and start breaking it down. Uh, What is your technique for actually scouting that area? What's your approach and what are you looking for? Uh, I'm going to scout it in the off season to where I can walk the area as much as I possibly can and find the best entry and exit point. OK, after I find good sign. OK, when you know, I, the, it's hard to find tracks in the mountains. So basically, I'm looking for deer tracks in general. And what I'm basically looking for is subtle. It's just depressions in the leaves. You have to really, really look. You can see tracks, but you just have to pay a little more of attention to detail. So I'm looking for areas that have a lot of deer track movement through them. I'm looking up high in places for large beds, you know, kidney-shaped impressions, uh, especially found a lot, by my experience, in grassy areas up high. Okay. I'm looking for rut sign. Every cedar tree, that's that seems to be the preferred rub tree of choice. There's exceptions. There's some bugs that some some bucks that prefer to rub on small hardwoods, but for the most part, it seems like the majority of the deer tend to do their rubbing on cedars. So every time I pass a cedar tree, I'm going to take a closer look and take a little detour off my path to check it out, see if it's got a good rub on it. I I really believe in historical rubs, and I really also make a mental note. And uh, when I'm walking through the woods, I've got my app active. And every time I find a scrape or a rub 
or any type of a trail intersection, I'm going to mark it and document it on my app and add all that when I'm scouting that area. And then when I get home and I see everything that I've marked and there's, there's going to be a lot of pointers, it starts to make sense when you back out and you look at the overall picture and really pay attention to the direction of rubs when you find them. So in my opinion, historical areas of, of concentrated rubs, that's a great indicator of buck movement through an area for years and years and years. It's been repeated a lot. And so you really are in a good area being there. Okay. So, but when I find all this type of sign and uh, another thing I'm looking for also is the, what I'd rather find probably more than anything is large, large buck scat, large scat that is like as big as the last digit on your index finger. It's pretty big. So I'm looking for that. That's one of my favorite things to find. And uh, if if I find I, when I'm looking and scouting the area, the first thing I'm going to do is scout along waterways and low ground, because if I'm looking for leftover rut sign, which is most of what I'm looking for. Okay, rubs, old scrapes. Uh, if I'm looking for that rut sign, odds are the majority of it is going to be down in the low ground at night where the best food is and where all the thermals, thermals are going to fall to all night long. We know that the majority of that sign is done at night. And so I, I'm going to look for it in that area. And if I find all that sign and large rubs, in an area, okay, then then I'm going to consider putting a camera in that area. If my camera is is going to be in the off season and there it's an area that doesn't get a lot of pressure, doesn't get a lot of traffic on roads, uh, doesn't get a lot of recreational activity, then the deer, in my opinion, would prefer to be down low where the best browse is along the water. And so I would tend to put deer cameras down lower to try and catch shots. Uh, if it's an area where, that has a lot of recreation, such as horse riding or, or just walking trails and things like that, then I would prefer to put my cameras up on higher ground because it would be my experience then that deer for the better part of the year are going to still be utilizing thermals and trying to use that high ground to get away from people. So it sounds like you're looking for mostly just kind of general deer sign. Like you're wanting to see an abundance of, of sign in an area. Is that correct? Like you're wanting to see a little bit of everything, right? Uh, another thing I'm looking for is, is uh, believe it or not, I'm, I am looking for feed trees. Okay, so once I find that rut sign down low, then I'm going to start looking higher up at some of the topographical features in that area, because I don't intend on hunting those deer down low. Like I said, I'm a morning hunter, so I'm intending to find a place above all that sign where I can find as many as those nice topographical features that come together as possible. Okay, and then that's where I'm going to hunt the deer that have laid all that sign down below, because I know that thermals and pressure during the season is going to bring them up to that area. And wherever all those compounding features join, that's the most likely place that those deer and those mountains are going to head to when the pressure is on. Okay, and when I get up there on that high ground, I'm looking, believe it or not, for feed trees. I'm, I'm looking 
first for white oaks. Okay. Uh, it seems like the deer around here, the first thing they ever go to, if you can find them, but they're hard to find is sawtooth oaks. They're actually considered an invasive species. Uh, they were brought in from Asia and, um, it's, it's an acorn that's fully encased, and it's a traditional elliptical-shaped leaf with, like, little teeth along the edge of it, okay? They drop really, really early. They start dropping in September, but deer will hit those before they hit anything else. And then from there, they'll usually transition to white oaks, so I'm looking for those. And also... You find some around here of uh, swamp chestnut oak. Some people call them cow oaks. Okay, they're a member of the white oak family, so they're they're sweeter than other acorns, just like white oaks are. And so, if the white oaks aren't available, but chestnut oak are are, then they'll go to those instead. Then, after they run all out of all of that, then they'll usually end up moving on to red oak and. We have southern and northern red oak in this area, and the vast majority of the trees, though, are northern red oak, and that's that's where most of your red oak acorn crop is going to come from. But that's usually a good acorn to hunt, you know, during the rut season and after the rut ends, because they're usually still on the ground when the white oaks are long gone. So I'm looking for those feed trees also when I'm up on higher ground, close to all of those topo features. It's been my experience that deer can bed just about any place up there. You know, they're, when, when they're up in open areas like I like to hunt, sometimes they just lay smack dab down in the middle of an open area right on the side of the ridge. You know, they don't necessarily have to have cover. Sometimes they just go straight up to the top of the ridge and they just bed in a little thick briary area, just right smack dab on the top of the ridge, especially if the ridge is narrow on top and rocky. Because if, if they don't like it when the ridge is wide, but if the ridge is narrow, they, they don't mind bedding on the top of it. Even though they can't see for a long ways, they'll be in a little thick pocket of briars. And if they you see you, hit the top of that ridge anywhere close to them they just they they see you coming and or they hear you coming and as soon as they do the ridge is so narrow all they got to do is just take one bound either one direction or the other and they're off the top of the ridge and completely out of view and they know they're safe you have no chance of a shot mm -hmm. so you're going in and you're you're looking for these different features and then once you find that sign that confirms that this area is actually worth hunting. Then you're going and, and you're figuring out your access and your exit trails. Yes. Uh, I'm figuring after I find the area and I know that I'm interested in it, then the next thing I'm going to consider is how I'm going to get into it and how I'm going to get out, out of it. Okay. And that's just a theoretical thing that I have to try and figure out myself and experiment with I try it in the dark and either it works or it doesn't work. And that's why when I'm moving into new areas like that, I, I think I brought up this term before, I consider them a throwaway. Like I said, I've hunted enough years now that I have honey hole spots that I know how to get in and out of undetected. And I know that if I spend a few days during the rut hunting that spot, that I'm going to kill a mature buck. Okay. So I've got several areas that are like that, 
that I hold on to. And then I'm always trying to expand with new areas to add to that. And so the first time I go out scout an area, I'm going to go in and I'm going to hunt it that season, probably with archery gear, you know, and before things really, really heat up, you know, like sometime around the middle of October before the pre-rut, just, just before the pre-rut is going to start. Okay. And that way, if, if I burn it out and I screw it up the first time I go in, I know to re-examine it, find a different way to go in, a different way to come out. Uh, I've encountered some deer, so I know it has potential, but I may, it may take me another year and different attempts at a later date to try and find a successful way to get in and out of it to utilize it. Just, just, uh, I, I don't write down, uh, I have a memory like an elephant, and some, pe- so, some people's memory is not that good, uh, and mine is starting to fade a little bit with age, so this may change over the next few years, but I've never been one to make a lot of notes, and so uh, I, I basically keep everything in memory in my head, but I would, I would highly suggest if you don't have an excellent memory to, to keep some type of a journal and make notes of when you do make mistakes and, and detail, be as detailed as you can about everything. The more you detail things, the quicker you're going to learn from your mistakes. And, and get up to speed and start killing the type of bucks or the type of deer in general that you're that you're wanting to kill. Absolutely. Well, Chuck, I'm going to tell you right now, and I hope you'd be willing to do it. Uh, we're going to have to have you back on for a part three episode later this summer, uh, because I, the more and more we have this conversation, the more and more notes I'm writing down of uh, stuff that we haven't even touched on quite yet. But to kind of get to a point of almost wrapping up this episode, Chuck. I want to go over just a couple other Patreon questions that Patreons had, uh, Patreon members had left us, uh, and just get your take on it. Uh, this is from Chris uh, Summer Somerville. I, said, I think I said Summerfield earlier, but Somerville. Uh, I was kind of laughing earlier because I couldn't remember if you said Summer Town. And no, I was like, instead of Billy, you said no, town. no, no, no. <laughs> that would be something you'd do. Yeah, that would be something. I'd do. But so, Chris, <laughs> again, guys, if if you want to be able to kind of uh, you know put direct input into the uh, podcast, you can join our Patreon. And when we do episodes like this, especially in series, we kind of ask for feedback from listeners and, and get specific questions from you guys and get y'all a shout out. But Chris asked another question here, and he was asking. What do you use, and what is your pack setup for, again, hunting off the ground? And he was wondering, are you packing deer out, like cutting up and butcher them in the field, or are you dragging them out as well? When I started for years and years and years, just up until about three years ago, every deer, no matter how big the buck was that I killed, I, I have a little blaze orange. I think it's made by H.S. Strutt, just a deer drag. You know, a blaze orange, little lightweight nylon harness with with a rope on the back end of it. And I just wrap it around its antlers, gut it and drag it. <laughs> and uh, you, you, in the mountains, you would think, oh, well, that's not too bad. It's all downhill. Well, it depends on where you're at. Sometimes you've got to go from this finger to that finger or or go a little bit up and a little bit down and it's it's not the easiest thing in the world to do but i've always managed to do it and uh so i but i'm a pretty fit guy uh, i'm about six feet tall weigh about 165 pounds so a lot of times i'm 
pulling deer that weigh just about what I do. And sometimes on an incline, I might have to lay on the ground and pull on the harness to get the deer to move. But I'm pretty bound and determined that I want to get it to where I want to go. And it might take me half a day, but I will eventually get it out of the woods. <laughs> now, about three years ago, I, I actually bought a, uh, a deer cart one of those that uh, breaks down and now I just carry it and keep it in the back floorboard of my truck. And, um, I, 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 so if, if, if I kill one now, I might have to use the harness to drag it over the top of the ridge and get it down the backside. If I'm parked and I come over from the backside of the mountain, but once I get it down to the bottom of the mountain, then if I'm down the road a ways or whatever, or, or the, the incline of the land gets more forgiving and the brushes are too thick, then I can use the cart at least to get the deer the rest of the way to the truck. And it's, it's a big energy saver, big, big energy saver, especially if you've got any kind of a trail, logging road or anything like that going into an area. I would highly suggest using one. It, you can't use it a lot of times up on the steep parts of the mountain, but once you get the deer down off the mountain with the drag, then you can transfer it to the cart to get it the rest of the way out, and it saves a lot of energy. So I would highly suggest to anybody that wants to hunt a remote, spend $100 and buy, buy a decent deer cart. That's about how much mine cost. I think it was around $115, something like that, but it's money well invested that I should have invested a long, long time ago. But uh, that's, that's, that, uh, that's, that's part of it. Like I said, the little hunter harness, the drag harness, that's, that's a handy thing to have. And you can get those for around 10 bucks or less. And as far as breaking things down in the field, uh, if I'm really, really remote and I have to quarter or anything like that and carry just the meat out and tie the head to my pack, which I've done that before, then uh, if you need to do that, uh, I usually carry like Alaskan game bags and a blood bag inside of my pack so that if I have to quarter the deer in the field, I can go ahead and do it and just pack out the meat attached to my pack along with the head. Perfect. And, and also, just kind of a segue on his question, or maybe just in addition to his question, he didn't say this specifically, but I'm just curious because I think some listeners are going to be wanting to know this question too. Uh, what do you carry in your backpack on, a, on an average hunt? And also, do you have a specific backpack that you really enjoy using that you've used for a little while? Uh, I'm, I've got one that my oldest son gave to me. He and I deer hunt together a lot. Uh, my, my two younger sons are not that much into deer hunting, believe it or not, but my oldest one is, and, uh, he works a whole lot as a welder. So we don't get a lot of time to hunt with it with one another, but when we do, we can, or when we can, we do rather. And he bought me a pack. It's pretty good size. It's not a frame pack, but it's a very well-made pack by LL Bean. And I really like it a lot. And uh, I'm not sure how many cubic inches it is, but it's it's pretty roomy. Uh, I try not to carry anything more than I have to. I try and keep my weight down being in the mountains as much as possible to prevent breaking a sweat. And so uh, any extra clothing that I'm going to carry, I, I try and climb the mountain with as, as, as little clothing as possible. And then once I get up to where I'm hunting, with the weather being cold, I'll, I'll have uh, extra layers either inside or else rolled up and attached and tied onto the outside of my pack. And then I'll throw all those layers on once I get up there. Inside my pack, I've always obviously got some hydration and uh, I don't carry that much food because I find that 
every time I pull food out and eat, something bad happens. <laughs> uh, uh, it seems like I have really good luck for some reason when I pull my cell phone out. Every time I pull my cell phone out, it's it's to either call or to message my wife. And it seems like every time I do that, a good buck ends up in my lap and I end up letting her listen to a shot over the phone. <laughs> I've had good luck with phone calls and messaging my wife, but I've had really bad luck with eating. So I don't carry much to eat. Uh, I might carry some pistachio nuts or a can of Vienna weenies, you know, something like that. I don't carry much. I try and keep the weight down. I do carry a, a caping knife and a skinning knife and a gut hook. I carry a, a small, short Gerber pack saw. Uh, usually carry a machete in case if I have to hack my way through anything really thick to find a buck that I've shot. Because uh, as y'all probably know, they really, really like running into the thick stuff after they get wounded if you don't just put them down right away with an arrow. I don't seem to have that problem with the guns. With the guns, I usually go for a broadside high shoulder shot and try and just drop them in place. But with a bow, obviously, you you got to get it into those lungs. And so sometimes, uh, depending upon the adrenaline state of the deer, they may run 100 yards or more. And if there's thick stuff close by, they're going to utilize it. They're going to run into it, especially the mature bucks, which uh, uh, that, that just reminded me of another feature about mountains. But I guess we can talk about that on another yeah, episode. Yeah, I was going to say – Save it, save it. Listen, listeners are going to hate us. You know, they're absolutely going to hate us. But hey, it's great because now they're going to have over three hours of, of content from Chuck, from you, uh, to be able to listen to for this fall because I'm excited. So yeah, definitely save that, but I know I'm going to have listeners pissed. I had one on Patreon. He was kind of joking. I think it was on Patreon. He was yeah, like, it was on Patreon. Yeah, I don't he, know. He, he's like, what's up with the stupid cliffhangers? <laughs> <laughs> somebody, somebody, you did send me a question where somebody had asked me what type of uh, uh, seat that I use. Yeah, I was going to say and, that uh, Greg, I think it's Esky, is how you say his last name? Esky? Uh, anyways, Grant, I can't, sorry to say your name wrong. That's but. a pretty important part of my setup, actually, because it, it really enables me to be comfortable for hours upon end. And uh, I hate to mention brands, but I have to. Uh, it's actually a Browning Strutter chair meant for turkey hunting that I'm using. And uh, they also make what they call an MC model that's a little bit wider and bigger than than mine. If, if, if you're a little bit larger guy, you might want to spend the extra money. I think it probably costs about an extra 10 or 15 bucks for the large size. But it also weighs about a pound heavier. This thing weighs about seven pounds. It comes in a carry bag, but I don't even use the carry bag. It's got a shoulder strap, and I just strap it around my shoulder. And uh, I've got my crossbow or my gun on my right shoulder, and I've got this thing on my left shoulder. It's easy to maneuver around brush with. It, uh, as long as you have a hand on it, you can keep it from getting hung up on stuff. The only addition that I've made to that thing is uh, um, I, I use a couple of short little bungees to wrap around it to make it quieter so that it can't give any because it, it kind of folds down into a long cylindrical shape. But the when you're carrying it with the strap, that cylindrical shape can kind of try and squeeze in and out a little bit from the movement of your body. And when it does, it tends to make a little bit of noise. Well, I'm a fanatic about quiet. I don't like noise. So I've, I've, I've modified all the legs, which are just, um, 
I guess it's probably powder, black powder coated uh, steel. So I, I took camo tape and wrapped all of the bare steel with camo tape to quiet it down and dampen the noise uh, to keep any metal things from happening. If I drop something on it, you know, while I'm setting up and uh, anyhow, those, those bungees around either end of it, uh, keep it from expanding and contracting and making any noise. And it's completely silent, uh, easy to haul around for, for miles upon end. And it's really quick to, to set up and to tear down and, I, I like being mobile. If it's not happening where I'm at after a few hours, uh, I don't have any problem with getting up and trying another spot, you know? Oh, absolutely. And that's, that's what the big advantage I've heard from a lot of guys that, you know, ground hunt. You know, we kind of mentioned that on episode one, but like when you are hunting from the ground, if, if you keep seeing deer move, you know, just out of bow range or, you know, j- even out of gun range where you just don't have a clear opportunity because they're, you know, coming up the drainage across from you, uh, you know, across the uh, that secondary ridge point, you know, you can easily break down your setup and quickly move to the next position and reset up again very, very quickly instead of having to come out of a tree. So, you know, there is a huge, huge advantage of that. Yeah, it's like everybody says, there's there's a, there's an upside to downside to basically anything that you do. Mm-hmm. What you gain in one area, you're, you're liable to lose in another, you know. And you got to think about this, you know, you're in the mountains and I kind of get this. I now understand better after hunting the uh, Ozark National Forest, and Ozark Mountains, even though they're not nearly as rugged as the stuff that you're hunting, you know, there's still some pretty serious elevation drop. And after hunting there, I'm like, I can, I can see how you could get away with hunting off the ground better than if you're going to be like in hill country or especially flatland when there's really not a ton of advantage hunting on the ground in my opinion i'd I'd like to be elevated in those situations Um, well there's always a physical limitation when it comes to carrying a tree stand it's not that bad when you're on rolling hills or flat ground but when you start climbing steep ridges most of the guys that i know around here that use a tree stand tend to leave it in the woods for long periods of time they'll hunt that same spot for weeks on end you know, they'll just leave the tree stand there and they, they burn areas out quickly. I like being a little more mobile than that. Uh, I like covering more than one area. I like moving around, you know? Yeah. And that makes perfect sense as well. Also, I'll say this, um, again, appreciate all the listeners on Patreon that left us some uh, questions for this episode. Uh, one of the last ones, this is from, uh, Jake, uh, Hembry. man, some of y'all have just you know, not the easy. Well, like, where's the Smiths at? Where's the Smiths like Davis and before stuff? We, before we move on to the next question, yep. can I just make a quick note on this? That yeah. that strutter chair, it has a back made into it. It's kind of like a nylon camp chair, so it's really pretty comfortable even being at ground level. But if you don't like your knees being up, then my backup to that is even lighter, and it's a stand that, that works really well for super remote. If you're going to go two or three miles in. It's a Millennium M300 tree seat is the model number of it. And it's so comfortable, you'll fall asleep in it. And both both of these seats uh, are like nylon-type webbing mesh. And so they don't really hold any scent. So that's another bonus to them as well. Okay, perfect. And this last question here, this is from, uh, again, Jake. Uh, and he was asking specifically, you know, what when you're seeing scrapes more frequently is there are they under specific species of trees uh he's talking about where he's at beech trees is definitely that species um uh, do you see anything like that in your neck of the woods especially maybe at some of those lower elevations uh yes uh we 
the biggest concentration of beach over in Arkansas, I'm pretty sure, is out at Candy Creek Management Area, which is about an hour away from where I live toward Oklahoma. And it's a I love beach. It's a really beautiful, a beautiful scenery in the woods when you have a, a high percentage of beech trees. It gives a completely different look to the woods and I love it. And I hunt over there every once in a while just because of the beauty of it. But uh since gas has gotten expensive, I travel over there a little bit less than I used to. But as far as the tree types in this immediate area of the Washita's, yeah, definitely. Uh, it seems like if there's holly in an area down low, okay, which is the majority of the places that I'm going to look for scrapes is down low, closer to water. Because from my experience, there's just not as many scrapes or rut sign in general, including rubs, usually high up. Now, the exceptions are a lot of times I find really large rubs smack dab on the top of ridges. Okay, but I don't usually find that many scrapes up on the top of ridges in the wash toss. And I think it's mostly because it's so incredibly hard and rocky. You know, they want something they can paw into. And it's, it's kind of hard to paw into six feet of rock. <laughs> so the 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 trees that are most common down low for sure in my area that I usually find scrapes on under are are white oaks and especially holly trees very common under holly trees and I started I started out hunting in South Arkansas and that was extremely common in South Arkansas was the holly trees so that applies down there as well well and see you've already you said something else in this whole for what you just discussed, he says something there that probably a lot of listeners aren't going to pick up on, but it, it sparked a brand new question. I'm like, yeah, we're going to say that for part three. So you better, you better write it down. I know, I'm going to have to write down. Uh, anyways, it, it, yeah, it, anyways. Here, get out your phone right now. No, no, it. no, it's all good. I'll type it in. No, I'm telling you, you're going to nah, forget no, it. No, no, because we get it right here. It has to do with this. Oh, yeah. I got you, I got you, I got but, you. But uh, anyways, but uh, Chuck, let me say this. Again, just utmost appreciation for you come back on the podcast and share a lot of this knowledge uh, we've had some awesome feedback i had one guy that made a comment on the social media post for your first episode and uh he made the, the statement and this is roughly paraphrasing but he said it, it's amazing with only 28 years of experience what you've you know learned because he said you know he knows guys with that amount of experience that doesn't do nearly what you're doing as in the consistency factor and also just the overall knowledge and, and really the hunger to continue to learn too um, it, it seems like some people, not all people, but it seems like some people, once they have start to have a little bit of success, they kind of get stuck in their own ways and they don't really want to change anything. They plateau. And they, yeah, they plateau. And it seems like specifically with you, you have that hunger to continue to want to learn, continue to understand situations to become better and better each and every year. And it definitely shows and, and definitely is greatly appreciated by us and the listeners. Well, I, I'm glad that I can help somebody out. And I, I, I will say that I I, I think one thing that has helped me is that I am definitely a, a goal-oriented person. And I, I think any deer hunter that, 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 that is willing to set some type of a challenge out in front of themselves as a goal is, is, is more willing to accomplish that or even start heading in the right direction toward it and accomplish it eventually than just walking around out there blind, really not knowing what you're trying to accomplish. You have to know what you're after to be able to reach it. That's a good point. It's like if you don't know what you're – if you don't know what – not necessarily the end goal is, but if you don't have a, a line of path, then you're just to be wandering and, and, and wandering in and out of the success. And it kind of goes back to something we've discussed a lot on the show is 
always going and asking questions when you're in the woods. And I don't mean like verbally like saying out loud like a question. I'm saying like, why did this happen? And what can I learn from this experience? Or why did I not see a deer on this hunt? And what can I learn from that experience? Instead of just saying that that's the usual, like I just, you know, I've gone 12 hunts and haven't seen a deer. Well, there's something going wrong. There's something happening there, whether it's entrance and exit routes, not understanding thermals, just being in the completely wrong area, reading nighttime sign. There's a bunch of different things, but if you're constantly asking yourself, you know, what's working, what's not working, and build upon it, you'll become more successful in a much quicker time frame than just go out there and just believe, like, that's the norm. Like, the norm is not seeing deer. The norm is, I only see one good buck a year. Well, if you if you decide that's not going to be the norm for you and go out there and change it, it will dramatically change your overall success level and also your mindset going out there to have more confidence when you're actually out there hunting. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're talking like Richard Fought now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that confidence is a big thing. It really is. But but you, you gain that confidence through through experience and through woodsmanship, and you can, like he says, definitely shorten the learning curve. You know, by uh, you know talking to other hunters that have experience and 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 sharing and and being open minded. You know. Uh, always help people you know and definitely you know if if you can do anything introduce a kid to hunting there's a whole lot less of them that are into it nowadays and uh it's it's just the best thing in the world that you could do for any child is to get them into hunting and fishing if they stray off the path in life it gives them an anchor and a base to get back to 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 get their life right again yeah absolutely absolutely Absolutely. well chuck thank you again for coming on the podcast again thank you to the listeners as well for giving some feedback for this episode and stay tuned for part three make sure you're subscribed to the podcast and hey if you want input for part three make sure you go join our patreon uh and if you join our patreon not only will you be able to kind of get some interactive uh you know messages with us behind the scenes and some things going on but also you're gonna get uh, addition to or the added value of our new in the field podcast series which andrew i guess we got the second episode already out by this time oh yeah well hopefully there's more than two out by the time this drops because yep. this might not drop for two or three weeks okay so but yeah so guys again you'll kind of have that option as well to go and check that stuff out but uh chuck thank you again for coming on the podcast it's been a fantastic time and very very excited for uh, having you on once again for a third episode and uh and getting some uh some other topics because there, there's a lot here to talk about with your experience so thank you again chuck well you're welcome and i'll talk to you as many times as you need to to get it all out on the table <laughs> so thank you all very much and i appreciate the listeners uh i'll be glad to try and answer any questions that you have uh, I don't do social media, but I'd be willing to give you all my email address. And if anybody has any questions, they could email me. Absolutely. I was going to say, we can put that out in the show notes uh, and also for some of the Patreon guys as well. So if anybody has any uh, specific questions, they can kind of get in touch with me directly. So that would be perfect. So thank you, Chuck. All right. No problem. Y'all go ahead and write down the dates, June 28th through June the 30th. Go ahead and just mark those off your calendar so you can be at the Dalton Convention Center in Dalton, Georgia for the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard a a ton of content from that expo last year that we posted. Uh, We talked about it a ton. Look, if you're the kind of person that listens to this podcast... 
This show was literally made for you. It was literally designed for you, which means you're going to love it. You know, all the best companies in mobile hunting are going to be there. A lot of the best deer killers in the Southeast are going to be there. A lot of our past podcast guests are going to be there. It's just, it's going to be an incredible event. And hey, if you've been looking to either get into a saddle or maybe a mobile lock-on setup or just a different kind of tree stand setup, I'm telling you, it's worth the investment to go to this show because they're all going to be there and you, you will get to try all of them in person before you buy it. So you don't have to order something online and then wait for it and then try it when it comes in to see if you really like it. You're going to get to go put your hands on everything all in one day, test it all out and figure out exactly what works best for you and have it taken care of before deer season starts. So like I said, go ahead and put it on your calendar, guys. It's a no-brainer. You got to be at the show. Again, it's Friday, June 28th through Sunday, June 30th in Dalton, Georgia. We absolutely cannot wait to meet you guys there and talk hunting. So we'll see you at the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo in Dalton, Georgia.